The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. I have seen farmers growing crops under adapted systems, even low-cost systems. And they are able to send the kids to school. They are able to pay for a better health care services. And they are able to buy better and more food. It's possible. And being in El Salvador, I have seen farmers that they prefer to continue working in, in the farm invest, expand. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 2, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm so honored that you chose this podcast and this specific episode to enter the world of the Vertical Farming Podcast. It's the show where I interview fascinating CEOs, founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. My name is Harry Duran, and in case you missed last week's show, I had a great conversation, the first with a not specifically founder of a vertical farming company, but actually someone who has a bunch of different uh, skill sets. It's Kyle Barnett, and he's the founder of a site called Ponic Jobs and the co-host of the Crop Talk podcast. We have a wide-ranging conversation on all things hydroponics and all the different interests that Kyle has. It's been a very well-received episode, so make sure you check that one out if you haven't listened to it. This week, I speak to Melvin Medina. He's the Agricultural Officer at FAO, which is the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. This episode is brought to you by Series Greenhouse Solutions. If you're looking for a greenhouse solution that will suit your specific climate and growing goals, then talk to an expert from Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series combines passive solar concepts, innovative climate control technologies, and customized grow systems to ensure that their growers are yielding the highest quality product year-round for the lowest operational cost. Visit Series Greenhouse Solutions, that's C-E-R-E-S, greenhousesolutions.com to learn more. FAO is an organization that is striving for zero hunger, a sustainable planet, and a future of food for all. We talk about Melvin's passion for horticulture, the numerous roles Melvin has had in the ag tech industry, and the impactful work he's done in Jamaica, Tanzania, Cambodia, and Italy, just to name some of the few places he's been. It's a virtual uh, tour around the globe in this episode. We touch on specific projects he and his team have worked on throughout the years, and the message Melvin would like to leave about the future of ag tech and vertical farming. I learned a lot about FAO and all the good things that they're doing in this sector and fascinating and inspiring to hear Melvin's journey. So pay attention. There's a lot of great takeaways from this episode. By the way, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter for weekly updates on all things happening in the world of vertical farming. And there you'll also be notified when new episodes are available. Melvin Medina, Agricultural Officer at FAO, which is the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Well, thanks to you for inviting me and be part of this uh, movement. Thank you. I'm wondering if you have listened to podcasts or if, if it's something that you've been using to consume or, or learn about content recently. Yes, actually, I have after uh, listened to uh, some of the um, contributions from other colleagues in the past. And yes, not all of them, but yeah, 
we were talking a little bit about how we were sometimes you discover these things after the fact but we both born in El Salvador <laughs> which is a sometimes small world but I'm interested in just going back winding the clock back a little bit when you started when you were in high school and, and university were these did you see yourself working in in this industry back then were, were those things that were of interest of you to you like um, th this topic about food and agriculture Yes. Well, actually, I studied in the, um, the Pan American School for Agriculture, mm -hmm. Samorano, in mm -hmm. Honduras, Okay. where I did my um, two degrees. Uh, one is uh, uh, agronomist, and the other one was the um, agricultural engineering, um, which is uh, the equivalent to the bachelor degree. Yeah. And um, since the beginning, I... I was pretty much interested in the horticulture, not much in the animal science or extensive uh, crops. But I really liked the um, the horticulture, especially vegetables, and um, and this is how I became, let's say, more interested on on this type of crops. But then, um, fortunately, I, after graduation, I, I got a job in this area of work. Do you remember where that passion or that interest or that curiosity for horticulture began? Uh, yes, well, actually, I liked the maybe the the fact that these type of crops are are short crop uh, cycle, and they the, these type of crops they have a lot of they are affected by many pests and diseases. And um, so it was a challenge for farmers to be able to produce vegetables, especially in tropical areas, because I was studying in Honduras, but and then I went back to El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And um, being in a tropical country with uh, six months of uh, rain, it was challenging to be able to produce year-round. Year and... Um, but then I discovered the, the world of protected cultivation systems where in the, in the tropics, if you know how to adapt the system, you can produce year-round. Um, I mean, like with higher yields and less problems compared to the open field systems. And what were some of the early technologies or systems that you started working with where you saw the, the potential for what was possible in controlled agriculture systems? Yeah, well, in, I got a job in this farm, which was the most, let's say, advanced farm in, in the country at that time. And um, we, we were growing fruits and vegetables. They were around one of the hectares for pineapples, but also mango and avocado. And I was in charge of uh, for the production and packaging of vegetables. So this was my first job. And um, was that the job at Fusades? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that was the Salvadoran Foundation for Economic and Social Development. Okay. And well, after a few months, I. I realized that uh, growing in the open field, we used to have uh, 20 hectares under open field for vegetables with crops like sweet corn, watermelons, green beans, melons. And then I was also in charge for one hectare of, of greenhouses where tomatoes, bell peppers, lettuce were cultivated using a soilless uh, culture. Mm, okay. So that was my first contact with the soil-free systems, and um, I had the opportunity to see the differences between open field and protected cultivation systems in terms of quality, efficiency, and, and the production levels. Did you notice anything different in terms of the, the taste as well of the vegetables or the, the varieties you could create? Yeah, well, the, I would say more... The differences that I, that I saw was in more related to first efficiency in the use of water and fertilizers mm -hmm. compared okay. to the open field, but also the, in the efficiency of controlling pests and diseases, because you know with with the plastic, with the nets, 
we used to spray much less than in the open fields, which this uh, gives you a reduction in, in the use of uh, chemical pesticides and, and, and increase the efficiency in the biological control agents. In terms of quality, yes, because I was also in charge of the packing of these uh, vegetables and we used to supply supermarkets. And most of the rejections came from from the open field product products. Mm, mm-hmm, so, makes sense. yeah. So the the one of the main uh, differences was in terms of quality, because the um, up to ninety five percent of the produce coming from protected cultivation system was accepted by the market, and this was one of the main reasons. What's the percentage for open field? What I can tell you is that uh, 80% of the, re- the total rejections was coming from the produce cultivated in open fields. And then from there, you started, can you tell us about how you made the, the transition to starting to work at, at FinTrack? And for the listener as well, explain what the organization is. Yes. Before that, I established and installed my own greenhouses to produce tomato and sweet pepper in low-cost greenhouse systems, using, I mean, using local materials. So actually, and I started to produce and sell as a, as a private business. So I was really uh, becoming a farmer. And um, after a few crop cycles, I got a visit from a person from FinTrack, which is a company implementing projects based in the Washington DC. So they were implementing this project in, in El Salvador after the after the earthquakes in 2001. And they asked me if I was willing to help them um, to do or to replicate what I was doing in my farm, but with the small scale farmers in different locations in El Salvador. And I something came to me that I said, Yes, of course, this is what I want to do. I want to share my knowledge. I want to share my experiences. And um, and that is where I started to work with them. So I used to travel to different uh, locations in El Salvador. Do you know how they found you? Well, they were looking for advanced farmers. And they found me because El Salvador is a small country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They offered me this job that at the beginning was part-time, but then because of the the requirement of providing technical assistance to farmers from the construction to, to harvest, going through the whole production process, needed an agronomist to visit them and provide technical assistance, then I was hired uh, full-time. And you were there for how long? Three years? No, well, actually, with the company, I I worked with them 15 years in total. But in El Salvador, okay. it was from 2002 to 2005, because then they got a new project in Jamaica, which yeah. was called the Jamaica Recovery Program after Hurricane. don't remember exactly the name of that hurricane. Mm-hmm. So in 2005, I was moved. To Jamaica to replicate what we were doing in, in El Salvador. And it was really a very good experience because we were establishing the first greenhouses in, in Jamaica. Wow. Yes. So we selected. What was the most surprising thing for you when you arrived in Jamaica? I know I, there could be similarities, but I'm wondering what was the most surprising thing for you when you arrived? Well, uh, it was my first time out of my country. and. Um, I have to say that I, I didn't speak English. <laughs> so when I when I arriving in Jamaica without speaking English was challenging. But when they, yeah. they offered me a, a translator and I say, no, this is my opportunity to learn English. And uh, so yeah. after a few months, I was speaking English with a Jamaican accent. And, um, well, it's not the best place to learn English yeah. because of the local dialect, but, um, it was, it was good. It was good. Um, I mean, it was surprising the, the prices, for example, for the products for, for one kilo of tomato, one kilo of sweet pepper of, of lettuce, 
comparing to the prices in El Salvador, it was extremely high. And we had a good experience because, well, good in, in, uh, in 2005, we got uh, two or three tropical storms and I think one hurricane again. And the farmers who were having uh, something to sell were all farmers uh, growing crops in the greenhouses. Mm, wow. So the rest of the country was totally destroyed at the, in the open field. And that helped it to have a bigger impact because then everybody wants to have a greenhouse. <laughs> and is, if you see now my farmers, the, the ones that I, I was providing technical assistance, the first ones are the leads now in, in the country. They are all providing technical assistance, trainings, and not only in Jamaica, but also in, in the Caribbean. So now you can find maybe more than 300 greenhouses in the country. Well, I'm wondering what type of challenges or differences in construction you have to take, take into account for when you're building a greenhouse in an environment that is susceptible to hurricanes. I wonder if you need to make something a little different than you would in a place that, that doesn't get them. Oh, definitely. We were uh, at the beginning using um, wood because we believed that the wood was going to be the cheapest type of material for constructing the, the greenhouses, but this material was imported. So it was almost at the same price of metal uh, in frames. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, one of the things that we learned. And actually then there was the discussion about the design, which is the best design for Jamaica, for, you know, against hurricane. They wanted to have a hurricane proof, but it doesn't exist really. What you have to do is just to have some preventative measures, like removing the plastic, removing the nets, mm. because it's better to lose the crop, but not to lose the structure. A good point. But if you don't remove that, uh, then you're going to lose everything. And we had some experiences, and I have some reports that are, because after I went there a couple of years after to do an assessment, and I could see that after a hurricane, some of the wooden structures were still standing up, and some of the metal imported from Israel were totally destroyed. So it was about what to do and when to do this. Uh, preventative measures. It must have been a good feeling for you, and even now as you look back, to see the impact that you had, because when you arrived there was nothing like that there, and now you've created a whole ecosystem of people who are learned from you and now are passing on what they learned from you onto the next generation. So you know, it, it must be a good feeling to see how your legacy is now lived on in Jamaica. No, definitely. Just to give an example, right now in FAO, we have a project which is going to be implemented in four different islands in the Caribbean. It's going to be on um, protected cultivation systems, the small islands. And uh, one of the international consultants that we are going to use is one of my first farmers in Jamaica because he is the best. I mean, he's mm. he, he has been traveling around the, the region and I must say he's really good. So can you talk maybe about one of the other projects you worked on at FinTrack after you started to move away from the, the work you were doing in Jamaica? Yes, after Jamaica, I, I got this call to go to Tanzania. And um, Tanzania is an amazing place with, a, with huge potential to grow vegetables because of the altitude about sea level in some areas in the country, it's a huge country, but so the FinTrack got this, this project and they called me to go and, and do an assessment and see the potential for to establish again low cost uh, greenhouses. And then we established uh, 10, 10 different in 10 different locations for small scale farmers and they started to grow slowly, not as fast as in Jamaica because you know, Jamaica. Uh, Farmers are, I mean, they have more funds and, and they they have more money to invest than and the farmers in, in Tanzania. And one of the main challenges is to have enough uh, funds to for invest. 
in these type of uh, systems. But uh, yes, it has been growing. One of the main um, issues in Tanzania was the market, transportation uh, in general, because the areas where we were growing the crops were maybe six hours <laughs> driving to the main markets in the cities. So we were not prepared to, for, for these type of issues. But at the end of the day, we consolidated uh, the, with the open field uh, farmers because this program was not only in greenhouses, but also open field. So we, there was a, a lot of work in terms of marketing. Then I, I got uh, this other, another call to go to Cambodia, and I stayed um, six years in Cambodia. But then Cambodia was uh, totally different, wow. and it was good because I was going like too specialized in, in the greenhouses and protective cultivations systems. But in, in Cambodia, it was totally the opposite. It was everything in the open field in a very difficult environment around the Tonlesap uh, Lake, where you are at sea level, heat, high humidity, mm -hmm. high temperatures all year round. So we were not able to do any greenhouse there. <laughs> so it was everything about open field systems, which really helped me to go back to the basics, to see a lot of different experiences with many different crops. And let's say stop for a while on this greenhouse and systems yeah. yeah can you talk a little bit about all the experiences you've had because you know it must have been something at least el salvador to jamaica there's still a bit of the like the caribbean like some of the maybe you know the culture is you know some overlap not too much but then when you go to places now you go to tanzania and, and now you're going to cambodia was it a bit of a culture shock for you, or did you have time to, you know, get a feel for what, what the culture was like in these different places? No, definitely the, the culture is totally different. I mean, I, I must say that, I mean, I, I have enjoyed working in Tanzania as well as in Cambodia, just like the, the different culture. Cambodia, for example, the, everything is fresh. Marketing is not an issue because... There's a lot of um, food available, and this is part of their culture. They like to eat fresh food, fresh vegetables, and this is something that I, I realized when I was there, coming from Tanzania, where food in some places is not available. In some areas, I remember when I was in, in some re very remote areas, where you can travel uh, three hours without any, is, you don't see any house, any restaurant or anywhere to eat. And mm. you still drive and drive and drive and you can't see anything, just maybe wild animals. <laughs> but in Cambodia was totally different as a population is, is, is higher than, I mean more, the population is, the density is higher than in, in countries like Tanzania. So you, you find many, many places, restaurants, and everyone is cooking food because they like to eat a lot of fresh food. So that makes uh, farmers to sell almost everything they produce at the farm gate. And um, that was one of the main impacts they got from one country to another. And the different type, types of uh, vegetables. Did you have any opportunities to do any sightseeing in Cambodia? And there's a, I know there's a lot of beautiful temples there as well. <laughs> and it's one of, one of the places that's on my list to visit someday. Oh, definitely. I mean, I was living in Siem Reap, five kilometers from Angkor Wat, from the Angkor temples. And it's amazing, really. I can tell yeah. you. Yeah. And also the, the people is just amazing, friendly. My daughter was born there. And we had very good friends, uh, schools, uh, the price. Uh, I mean, the cost of living is, is very low compared to other countries. Now, it's a beautiful place, really. Yeah, a lot of places to discover. And I guess the most important is, is the, the people. Very nice, very friendly. And that uh, makes you really 
feel good, especially when you are with your family. And right now we, we are thinking about going back to visit some of the friends that we left there. Can you talk a little bit because about the challenges or the adventures of raising a, and having a family while you're doing all these traveling, all these different countries? Like when you're solo, you know, obviously it sounds very exotic. You just throw a backpack on and you can just travel the world. But I, I'm wondering how you, you thought about that. And, and I imagine it's a conversation you had early on in your relationship. But what were some of the, 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 the challenges, if there were any, about raising a family and then being in these different locations all the time? Yeah, definitely. Well, when I arrived in Cambodia, I was alone. My wife and my son were in Spain. You can imagine being in Spain and Cambodia, there's a huge difference. And so when I told them that I was going to go to Cambodia, everybody was talking, well, saying, so why, 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 why are you going there? But then when I arrived, I mean, it's one of the most peaceful places that you can be safe. And so then I, I told my wife, okay, come with me. You will see it. And then she came. She saw the environment. She loved it. Oh, she's a Buddhist. So <laughs> Buddhist, uh, being a Buddhist. In a oh, Buddhist that country, helps. <laughs> yeah. But I must say that she's very open. She likes to travel. And she is very easy to adapt, like myself. And, uh, and then um, our kids are the same. I must say they are very easy to adapt now we are in italy we have been here three years and this is my fourth year in rome and yeah we are very easy to adapt and i guess our kids are the same i think what's fascinating and really interesting is when kids see their parents or raised in an environment where they're introduced to so many different cultures they automatically assume that this is how families are and this is what life is and they're open to new possibilities and it feels like you're almost teaching them that it's great and it's nice to have a sense of adventure in life and to just you know and be open to new possibilities and and i imagine i don't know if you're seeing that already in them i don't know how old they are i think your experiences i'm pretty sure have shown them no definitely for example my son last year he asked me how long are we going to stay in rome in italy and where are we going to go after? <laughs> That's very nice. And so so now that the timeline gets us into you connecting with the group at FAO, so did they find you or did, or did you find them? No, no. I I applied for a position in, in Rome. Well, actually, I applied to two or three times. And I think the third time I got uh, the, the interview and, and, and I got the position. It was a long process, but uh, what I wanted to really do it was, instead of uh, being in one place, helping farmers, let's say, or assisting farmers in one location at a time, my vision or my objective was to be in a place or in a company organization where, where I could reach more people. And FAO ha has provided me the, this, the opportunity to be in one location, but helping many farmers around the world. Right now, I have been assisting, just to give an example, in, the, in, the first, in my first three years in FAO, I have been assisting um, countries around more than 60 countries, 60 different countries around the world in, in Latin America, Central Asia, Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific. So it, it's really what I wanted to do, and it's, it's a really big accomplishment for my, my professional and personal objectives, because right now I am able to help and assist uh, different farmers in different locations, different regions, different countries, with different uh, climatic uh, conditions, which is something that I was not, for example, for, it was my first time to assist farmers in the in Central Asia. I'm curious now that you've had experience with farmers now from across the world, because it was just a couple of countries when you're first getting started. What are you finding is is the common thread 
in terms of farmers' needs, farmers' concerns, now that you've had a chance to experience them from you know various parts of the world? Well, I think uh, there are some um, similarities and some differences in, in, in different regions and different cultures. But just to give you some examples, uh, what I have seen in the the issues that are common between countries and regions are, for example, the lack of access to funds or funding to start the business for, for investment. Another one is the access to high-quality extension services and, um, and also proper pest diseases, soil, water, nutrient management. This is what I have seen in, in, that is like common in between different regions and countries. But uh, there are also other more specifics depending on the region where you are. Just in Latin America, for example, there seems to be technical capacities, you know, a very good technical capacity, but the lack of investments by small-scale farmers. And in, in other regions, there might be more possibilities for private investments, but maybe these countries are located in the dry environments where crop production is more challenging. So I must say that the, some of the differences are related to the climate in each region. Tropical countries are more or less having the same issues, high temperatures, high humidities, and then the challenges are there, those, how to manage that. But in, if you go to the Middle East, uh, North Africa, where you have maybe 100 millimeters of rain there, there's another, and that's another, another issue. But in general, I, I think farmers need um, support, technical assistance, addressing how to manage climate, uh, how to improve genetic materials, seeds, high quality seeds, irrigation, water management, how to apply fertilizers, when to apply fertilizers, um, as well as uh, cultural practices, plant densities, prunings, and of course, the um, how to manage and control pests and diseases. This is pretty much what I have seen in between different regions and countries. Obviously, those challenges lend themselves to being solved through a controlled ag environment agriculture, right? Because if you can, if you don't have the pests, if you don't, if you can control the, or protect yourself from the elements, uh, which y you saw in your early days with, you know, doing the greenhouses in, in Jamaica and El Salvador, like you get more control over your, your crops. And so I, I'm wondering what opportunities you see and obviously, you know, we, th we think a lot about vertical farming here on this podcast and greenhouses and some of the hybrids we've seen as well. So in your times and your time at FAO, like what have you seen that could be helpful in terms of the new technologies that are coming available to help with some of these challenges? No, definitely. We are promoting protected cultivation systems in my division. The, the, it's the plant production and protection division in FAO. Since I arrived there, I have been trying to promote as much as possible the protective cultivation systems, and that includes greenhouses, net houses, the hydroponic systems, vertical farming, and soilless culture in general. Because we know that increase the efficiency and the use of land and water, and uh, also provides resilience against climate change, as well as increasing the efficiency and controlling the pests and diseases because you are in a controlled environment. I must say that uh, we need these systems to be affordable for small-scale uh, farmers. And um, it would be very good to come up with systems that are low-cost systems so farmers can afford to invest in, in this type of car cropping systems without losing the efficiency. We have some uh, projects, we have some uh, experiences in, in the organization. Um, 
with the far vertical farming and urban and peri-urban areas who, who to deliver fresh produce, taking advantage of pro proximity to, to the cities. So, but also it's, it's, it's very important to have technical assistance and training on crop production and protection under vertical farming or protected cultivation systems in general. And uh, one of the main challenges is the finance for initial investment because we know that uh, these type of systems are, are not uh, cheap, but um, I think between the private sector and organizations, uh, NGOs and, and the research and academia, we should come out with something that is going to be efficient, but also affordable. And this is what I guess our efforts need to be focused on in the next few years. Do you feel that it's important that if you are going to have success and bringing the cost down, that's an important thing too, because I think a lot of the focus and attention when it comes to things like greenhouses and vertical farming technologies is all the investment going into building like these high-tech buildings that cost a lot of money to build and it costs a lot of money to develop. And, you know, there is a learning curve because it's not something you can just give a open field farmer and then put place him in a, in a you know, in a container farm or, or maybe a greenhouse is easier, but even like a vertical farm and assume that the everything is going to be the same because there's a, there's a bit of a learning curve with understanding what some of that technology is and how to best use it for its maximum capacity. So do you see FAO looking to help create some of these systems or partner with existing companies and, and join forces together to help build these and, and, and make them more affordable? Yes. Well, just to give an example of what uh, some of the mistakes that I have seen in, in different countries is, for example, when the farmers wants to bring systems from Europe, from United States, from developed countries. So they actually, they buy the system. They want to install it in a tropical country where the conditions are totally different. And um, well, number one, the, those systems are expensive. Those systems are not adapted, adapted to, to the local conditions. And the people who is operating those systems don't have the training. So when you put all these things together, then you see after some time, you see them abandoned. And this is a very common thing because it's like a recipe. You are buying a recipe. Even uh, they sell the substrates, they sell you the fertilizers, the seeds, everything. It's like a kit. So when, yeah. when you open the box, then you just have to start to install everything and that's it. But that that's, it doesn't work. And I have seen many mistakes and um, just so no we that i think that approach it doesn't work so what we want to do in the organization is to come up with adapted but affordable systems and for that right now with the new management the organization is very open uh, to have partnerships with the private sector in the next years we are expected to have more partnerships and come up with uh, adapted systems for small-scale farmers in different countries. We know it's possible because we have done it before, as I have been uh, mentioning you during the, this talk. So we have to do something similar. And But we need the private sector, input suppliers. We need uh, also research in academia to come together and come up with something that is going to be really efficient but uh, profitable, because at the end of the day, we want farmers to make money to improve the livelihoods. And I, I can tell you that I have seen that. I have seen farmers growing crops under adapted systems, even low-cost systems. Yeah. And they are able to send the kids to school. They are able to pay for a better health care services, and they are able to buy better and more food. So it's possible. Yeah, and being in El Salvador, I have seen farmers that they have they prefer to continue working in, in the farm, invest, expand instead of going to the United States as an immigrant.
And that has, I'm sure that's uh, something that gives you hope <laughs> that there's there's a way forward. Like for the benefit of the listener and, and anyone who may not know about FAO, can you give some history about the organization? I mean, you it's almost a, a testament to how eager you were to partner with them because you applied three times. So it, it's something that was a goal for you. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the origins of FAO, what the FAO's mission is as well. Well, this the FAO is well, as you know, is the food for the food and agriculture organization of the United Nations. It was funded in, um, I'm not sure, <laughs> the year 1940 something, but it was mainly the the main source of knowledge. Actually, in the past, if you wanted to know something about irrigation, uh, soil management or peasant disease management, the main source of uh, for information was, was uh, the FAO. Many, many publications, high-quality publications. And one of the things that the organization has is the transparency, because we are not selling, and we are not selling irrigation systems. <laughs> we are not selling fertilizers. We are selling knowledge, well, and this is important. So being able to work in everywhere in the world i must say because we have almost 200 members countries that gives you the opportunity to really have a big impact so our mission is to assist countries we every time we have many different projects and many of them are addressing the request from countries and our mandate is to assist countries to address their own issues. It can be full security, full safety, full systems, crop production, crop protection. The organization is so big. We have a nutrition division because it's related to the food, economic, statistic. So it's, it's a really uh, big organization, I must say. Only in Rome, we have around 3,000 persons working for the organization, only in headquarters. So yeah. it's really big. And in this decade, these days that we are trying to accomplish the, the SDGs by 2030, 20, I think FAO plays a, a very important role. What's interesting about what's happened over this past year is that I imagine for someone like you seeing what COVID exposed in terms of supply chains, access to food, access to fresh food, food deserts, these were things that were top of mind for you like decades and years ago, you know, long time. Like you, you knew that this was, you know, you're, you're preparing for hurricanes in Jamaica. And so, you know, you're, these are conversations you're having on a regular basis, like the impact of, you know, natural events and things like pandemics, you know, I imagine this is almost probably the way you think, <laughs> like, how do we prepare for the worst, you know? And so I'm, I'm wondering what your take has been, you know, to, to see that almost like the rest of the, the world was like realizing, you know, people who had not thought of this issue or problem are now thinking about it and you don't have to convince them and you don't have to sell them on this idea because Everybody knows. Everybody knows how bad it can be, and so I'm wondering what that's done for for you, and and how if if that's made your work easier or more interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. I think during this pandemic, the world has uh, realized the importance of food and the supply. You know, when you are when you are eating your food and your plate, you never think about where this that food is coming from. And I think now people is starting to think about, okay, I mean, how many efforts are made for your food to be in your plate? But also that includes transportation. And, uh, you know, this is what now they are talking about the food systems, the importance of, of the food systems, which, is, which includes not only producers, but also all the actors including the, the consumers. So I think the, yes, the importance of food and agriculture in general is now highlighted during these times. 
for us, I mean, in my case, it has been very difficult because not, not being able to travel to assist countries in the field and trying to do everything virtual is a challenge because some things you can do virtual, but other things you can't have to go and see people in the field and do your job in the field. But anyway, hopefully soon everything is going to be going back to normal. Well, it's really fascinating to hear your journey and where, you know, I don't know if you you knew where you you were headed or where you would end up when you started this in El Salvador and, and all the different places it would take you and all the different people you would meet. And I imagine, you know, working for an organization like FAO is probably something that you had on your mind for a long time because it feels like the place where you can have the greatest impact for the type of work that you want to do. So is there anything else on your, what they call the bucket list of like other organizations maybe you want to work with or things you want to get accomplished as you think about your future? No, well, actually, I mean, I, at the beginning, I wanted to have some experience in the private sector, of course, because it's important. You, you, I don't think coming to FAO without having field and uh, yeah, private sector experience is good. So after 15, 17 years working in the field, with a private company implementing uh, field projects in different countries, I thought it was a good time to come to the organization and contribute. But yes, that was always in my mind, working in the develop development uh, world and share as much as possible knowledge, experiences, and help to reduce poverty and, and hunger. That was my main objective coming from a country where we see people going to bed without having a dinner. So yeah. now I really feel happy to be where I am. And hopefully I will have opportunities to grow within the organization and have a bigger impact. So as we wrap up, again, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your story. Very inspirational. This is a very industry-specific show, <laughs> and so we talk to people who are making names at some of the biggest companies in vertical farming. I think what I'd like to ask is, is there an ask that you have for this community? You know, I'm sure you have a pretty good uh, list of connections with some of the people at these companies, but uh, there are people listening, and is there anything you can think of that would be helpful in terms of a a connection or a conversation or a project you have coming up that you just want to share more news about? No, I mean, we are having many projects in the organization and some of them are including the vertical farming systems, but others are in general protected cultivation systems, including greenhouses, net houses. We have different projects in the, in right now we're going to implement projects in the Vietnam, Uzbekistan, the Caribbean, other countries. We have to have some experiences in the past. The vertical farming systems for strawberry in Gaza. Wow. We have some in Central America. We are having some experiences growing um, fodder, fodder in Syria and uh, low-cost hydroponic fodder in Sudan. So, as you can see, we have many projects because you can imagine almost 200 country members having each country a lot of projects but uh, it will be good to use this opportunity and tell the community that we are now open for partnerships with the private sector but also to tell that FAO's mandate is is mainly to work with um, small-scale farmers so uh, if you are talking about sustainability with the small scale farmers, we really need to come up with something that is going to be affordable, but also efficient and profitable. So what I would like to tell the community is that we are working in this direction. And if we can come up with something like addressing all these factors, it will be really good because we don't want to lose efficiency because of the cost. But I know it's possible. We just need to bring a lot of people on to get different opinions and also to tell the community that the systems have to be adapted to the local conditions, different climates, different type of systems. 
and uh, normally all these research and investments are done in developed countries not in the developing countries yeah. so we need more investment in for to do research in, in developing countries and try to address the the issues that uh, tropical countries or dry lands areas are having thank you so we'll make sure we get the word out when we publish this episode. So I want to thank you again for taking the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. And it was a nice surprise to be having a conversation with a fellow Salvadorian as well. So thank you for sharing your story. Where's the best place for listeners to connect, learn more about FAO and to connect with you? Oh, well, we have the FAO website. And particularly in my division is the Plant Production and Protection Division, where if you search on Google, the Plant Production and Protection Division of um, FAO, where you will find our website. And of course, you are always welcome to contact me directly. And we'll make sure we include all that information in the show notes for this episode as well. So if you're listening, you'll be able to see that in the description for this. So thanks again, Melvin. hope you have a fantastic weekend <laughs> in Rome. Oh, thanks to you, Harry. It was a pleasure to share my experiences and um, yes i'm we are uh, here whenever you come to rome let me know thanks again to melvin for sharing his story very inspiring learned a lot look into the work that fao is doing if you haven't done so already full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com Special thanks to our episode sponsors, Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series is creating sustainable growing environments by combining smart design, innovative technology, and dynamic partnerships. Learn more at seriesgs.com. That's C-E-R-E-S-G-S dot com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Two important takeaways. If you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed at verticalfarmingpodcast.com and there you'll also be able to sign up for our Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter. It's a recap of the weekly news in the world of vertical farming and we also notify you of any new episodes as well. Next week, great conversation. My first with two co-founders, it's with Alexander Olison and Graham Smith of Babylon Microforms. If you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.